September the 6th, uh, 2007. This is the Ontolog Forum, and it's our Ontolog Invited Speaker Presentation. Again, uh, today we have uh, Mr. Adam Peace, CEO of Articulate Software, with us. And he is going to give a talk entitled, The Suggested Upper Merged Ontology at age 7, Progress and Promise. So before I introduce Adam, maybe we will go around uh, the, uh, the list of attendees and have each one sort of give a brief uh, introduction of himself or herself. Uh, I'm Peter Yim, uh, one of the co-conveners of the Ontolog Forum, and I take this, uh, this opportunity to welcome everyone. Uh, let's go ahead down the list. Fabian? Uh, yeah, my name is Fabian Neuhaus. I work for NIST and also the University of Buffalo, and I'm mainly interested in ontologies from a philosophical and logical perspective. But uh, I've worked for about two years now in, on applied ontologies. Welcome. Ted? Ted Gordon? Okay, I'm Ted Gordon. I spend most of my time on the Millennium Project. Um, I, I did some work with Adam Pease a couple of years ago, a joint uh, project, and I work with Peter Yim on uh, various things, including State of the Future Index. Thank you. Welcome, Ted. Jim Shoning? Uh, this is Jim Shoning. I've worked with Adam Pease on this sumo ontology going back to uh, its inception and um, also working on the DOD data strategy. Welcome, Jim. Pat Cassidy? This is Pat Cassidy. I'm an ontologist, and I work at MITRE. Welcome. Cameron, any better? This is Cameron Ross. I'm uh, working with an organization called Mararco, which is interested in evaluating ontologies for application in underground, underground mining applications. Welcome. Laurie? Hi, this is Laurie Fava, also at Mararco in Sudbury, and interested in ontologies for underground mining. Thank you. Welcome. Steve? Uh, this is Steve Ray. I'm, I work at NIST. I uh, work on sort of a interoperability standards, in particular getting into semantic standards. And I guess in the past we've done a little bit of work with Sumo. One of my folks wrote a Sumo to Loom translator. Welcome, Steve. Uh, uh, Dwayne? Uh, Dwayne Nichols, Senior Technology Evangelist for Adobe Systems, uh, Chair of the Oasis SOA RMTC, and have been working in the Ontolog Forum for uh, the better part of a decade now, I guess it's been, and a uh, uh, big fan of Sumo. Fantastic. Welcome, Dwayne. Doug? Doug Holmes from Java Professionals, uh, interested in semantic web uh, technology applications. Thank you. Andrew? Yes, this is Andrew. I uh, work with a small company called Centaur. I do ontological development for multi-agent systems lately, uh, primarily in the area of cyber. Welcome, Andrew. Uh, Thank you. Bill? Uh, Bill McCarthy, Michigan State. I'm the editor of a recently approved ISO um, Open EDI Domain Ontology Standard in Accounting and Economics. Welcome, Bill. Uh, Patrick? Patrick? Patrick DeRusso. I'm the convener of the uh, Topic Maps Working Group in ISO. Welcome. 
Sean. Uh, Sean Barker, BAE Systems Advanced Technology Centre in the UK. Uh, my job is finding out what useful technologies there are and looking for industrial applications of them. Welcome. Ken. Hi, I'm Ken Vitlovsky. I'm a professor at Northeastern University. I work in ontology-based computing, semantic web, uh, situation awareness, bioinformatics, all that sort of thing. Welcome. And uh, is Mitch with us? Mitch Ringer? Yes? No? Uh, anyone else who has joined us uh, who, who has had a chance to introduce himself or herself? No? If I'll take the opportunity to introduce our speaker uh, now. Uh, Adam, I mean, for those who uh, have been with Ontolog for a while would would have realized that Adam has been with the Ontolog forum almost from its inception, and he has been extremely active, especially during our beginning phases. Uh, and uh, he is CEO of Articulate Software, and he has led the research in ontology, linguistics, and formal inference, including course, the development of the suggested upper-merged ontology, uh, whom everyone calls SUMO. He has also been leading the development of uh, a system called CELT, C-E-L-T, uh, Controlled English to Logic Translation, and the Core Plan Representation, uh, CPR, uh, as well as the Sigma Knowledge Engineering Environment. Uh, he has been sharing his research under open licenses uh, to, ex uh, to achieve its widest uh, possible dissemination and technology transfer and uh, has been a core element of this research. Uh, and as we can see, Sumo uh, has been downloaded by thousands of people around the world. And as I had mentioned in my uh, invitation message, the messages. Uh, Adam actually spoke for us back in 2003, and since we have been archiving our uh, lectures, uh, we do keep a record, and Adam's previous lecture on Sumo has been one of the top two downloaded uh, lectures uh, in our entire uh, archives. So, without further ado, uh, let's call on Adam to give us an update on how Sumo has progressed since uh, 2003. Great. Well, th thank you. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for the generous introduction. It's great to be talking to so many old friends uh, on this call, and uh, welcome to the new people who I have not yet otherwise met. Um, so I'm going to be talking about uh, how Sumo has progressed and evolved, but also try to give some background and overview uh, for those people who may be new to Sumo. So it's always a difficult balancing act, uh, trying not to repeat myself too much for folks that are very familiar with things, um, but trying to give others a fair introduction. So uh, I'll try to work that balance as best I can. So on our first slide, I have a bunch of uh, URLs. The main site for Sumo is ontologyportal.org. Uh, as Peter mentioned, we give away everything for free. We have kind of a Red Hat Linux model of, uh, for the corporation of giving away the products and selling the services. 
So uh, next page, page two. Um, so SUMO is a large open source formal ontology uh, stated in first order logic. Uh, it's been mapped to a very large multilingual lexicon. Uh, and it has a whole set of open source uh, tools for ontology development and application. I'll be talking about uh, each of these items in a bit more detail over the course of this talk. Slide three, um, just a quick uh, kind of give you the punchline at the beginning of the presentation for those people that uh, are already somewhat familiar with Sumo but wondering what's new. Uh, we've added just in the past year or so quite a lot of additional content about social relationships, uh, relationships between people, uh, information about uh, justice system and law, uh, and a large new edition uh, elaborating our military ontology, talking about uh, events and people and different kinds of standard military processes. Uh, I'll talk later uh, in more detail about a, a small effort I really did kind of in my spare time to try to bring in links from the DBpedia project, which is a large effort to take Wikipedia, the, the uh, system that I think probably everybody knows about, um, and structure it more like a database. And in turn, uh, my effort has been to structure that content uh, in line with formal ontology. Uh, we've, uh, just over the past uh, year, maybe about a year ago, uh, finished doing mappings uh, to all the latest content in the 3.0 version of WordNet, so that is the latest version that we're current with. Um, we have a whole bunch of effort that we've done in inference this year, working primarily with the University of Miami to bring in the, a suite of some 40 different inference engines they have uh, trying to comply with their language and get Sumo content um, into that language so it can be used as a test set. I'll talk about that in more detail as well. We've developed some new generation tools that allow us to export Sumo content in SQL to define databases and XML for messaging. Um, and there have been lots of new academic and commercial uses, and I'll talk about some of them that I've been personally involved in, but I'd encourage folks that are interested in seeing kind of the full range of stuff that's being done with Sumo to go to ontologyportal.org, go to the publications section, and uh, I've listed a whole set of different academic papers that uh, reference Sumo or talk about actual use of Sumo in some particular project, um, but by now Google Scholar does such a, a great job at collecting these references, you may have better luck just by going uh, straight and clicking on the link uh, at the base of that page that just has Google dynamically search for references to Sumo. It comes up with uh, hundreds of citations. Uh, next page, page four. Uh, we've announced recently the second annual Sumo Prize, and this is an effort to try to get uh, more students involved uh, working with Sumo. It's a $3,000 cash prize uh, that we awarded for the first time last year. We're going to do the same thing this year. Um, entries are due on December 1st. Uh, it might be a fun hobby project for some people, um, even if you do have uh, otherwise uh, uh, significant gainful employment, but I expect it will be most attractive to students and those people in uh, uh, overseas uh, countries that uh, the exchange rate makes that prize uh, all the bigger. Um, we're looking for open source submissions that extend Sumo, uh, and we're going to judge them by comparison to the existing set of Sumo domain ontologies. How formal are they? What's their scope and coverage? Are there just a few terms or hundreds? 
Um, does it address a sort of new, coherent, and important topic or, or domain? Um, and what is uh, the either the prospects or the reality uh, of actual utility of this content in a particular application? Um, so hopefully this will motivate some new open source submissions that will then be available to everybody that we can publicize. On to slide five, uh, and this slide is thanks to Steve Ray. Uh, thanks, Steve. Um, this slide attempts to put together uh, a view of standardization and a view of how standardization has progressed uh, over the years as computer science has uh, collectively as a field developed better ways of expressing information. So old-style standards, as Steve and I would, would characterize them, are most typically stated as English phrases and English definitions. Um, and no matter how rigorous one might be, no matter how careful one might be with the language that is used, there is inevitably going to be ambiguity and uh, the potential for confusion in those definitions. Different words speak differently to different people with different backgrounds. More recently, there have been a lot of standards, and Steve gives some, some good citations, uh, really some hierarchical structure uh, that helps send uh, strictly English definitions into the realm of something that's a bit more formal and machine processable. But still, it's the case that uh, in data model standards, most of the semantics, most of the meaning, is contained in either the English uh, or potentially other uh, natu human natural languages. Uh, most of the semantics is contained in the wording of the term names and the phrases uh, that define them. And what the field, I believe, and I think Steve believes, is it should be moving towards are real semantic model standards where there are formal logical definitions. Now, it used to be that standards were, were small and that one person or a small group of people could read the standard and really become expert on it, internalize it uh, at some, some deep level of comprehension. But as standards become much, much larger, and we certainly have good examples now like the PDES uh, step standard, which runs to hundreds, if not, uh, I think, thousands of, of pages, uh, it, it's virtually impossible for anyone to really internalize and understand that full uh, sum of content. Um, and so the danger with, with such large standards that are not uh, completely formal uh, and uh, machine processable is that there'll be some internal inconsistency. And it's going to be very difficult for any human to, to determine that there's uh, an inconsistency between you know, page 43 and page 2037 uh, of that standard. What we really need to be moving towards are standards which can be tested automatically, at least for internal consistency. Now, nothing will get us to consistency with the human intent for the meaning of the standard but at least we can start being able to do some of the same kinds of debugging that one would do on a computer program by having the uh, facilities available for automatic checking. On to slide six, um, just a little orientation. Forgive me here, we're in the background section that uh, uh, probably about half of you have already seen, but uh, it's important, I think, to cover for the, for the new people. Um, I wanted to distinguish a little bit between uh, three things in the world. Uh, this meaning triangle has been around in philosophy for a long time. Um, so the, what it tries to do is differentiate between a referent, a thing in the real world, a physical orange, 
uh, a term that we may give to things in the physical world, the word, English word orange, or its uh, equivalent in other human languages, and a concept, the sum total of meaning that the thing or the word may evoke in the head of a human being. And I believe that a lot of work in ontology has really gone on at the word level. Um, it's all based on uh, kind of using this word as an index into human thought rather than trying to state the full meaning uh, of uh, what this reference what this referent really is in the real world. I think we need to be working in ontology more at the level of defining concepts in broad ways rather than just creating indexes into human uh, internal definitions of concepts. And the closest facility that we have for doing that at the moment is formal logic. So on to slide seven, uh, let me just give an example, and forgive me again, some of you have seen this before. Um, imagine your view of the web where you have the content in white and uh, what the meaning of the, this content is, is is shown here in this bracketed red type. Um, if you have a resume and you, you as a human being can quickly identify, ah, Joe Smith is a common Western name and here's his education and so forth, and it looks like a resume because you've seen all this sort of stuff before. All of these words have meaning to you because you can read and understand English. Slide eight. Uh, with apologies to Peter, who can't actually read this, um, the, the rest of us uh, are going to look at this and just see a meaningless collection of characters. And this is a good analogy for how the machine sees this con uh, content on the web. It may be able to match characters or compare them, but it doesn't have any actual understanding. And this content in red, this markup, is going to have to be added by people or maybe learned statistically or what have you. The machine simply doesn't understand what, uh, what these words mean. Slide nine, there's been a tremendous amount of effort uh, now in structuring data in XML, and a lot of people think this will solve all our problems, and while it may address some problems, it leaves a lot of others unsolved. Uh, slide 10, so you've got some structure here, but the tag names and the contents are still meaningless collections of characters that the machine just doesn't understand. Slide 11. Uh, there's been, been a lot of work in taxonomies and now folksonomies, as they're called, um, and they help a little bit. Um, but if we have a taxonomy like what's shown here on slide 11, again, what the machine sees, slide 12, is a meaningless collection of characters that just have some sort of hierarchical relation. It doesn't understand in any way what uh, mammal or human actually means. Slide 13. Well, the semantic web has come along, and it's added at least a little bit of formal logical structure so that if we have the notion that Joe Smith is a particular person and people are kinds of mammals, that if you conform to the OWL specification and you have a conforming uh, OWL-based reasoner, that you can make the following inference, and it's uh, logically and uh, commonsensically justified that Joe Smith is a particular kind of mammal. Uh, slide 14, now again what the machine sees is this meaningless collection of characters, but at least it's able to make this inference that is very similar to an inference that people would able, be, able to be, uh, may be able to make. And so it doesn't actually matter in some sense whether it understands what's happening uh, as long as it comes up with the right answer, the kind of answer that a person would. So slide 15, uh, we could say that a, a smart machine should be able to make the same kind of inferences that people do, 
And in some sense, we shouldn't worry too much, uh, uh, at least as practical computer scientists, uh, whether that actually means the machine is smart or not. If it's doing something useful, that's a good thing. And we just want, I think, to get to the point where the machine makes enough of these similar inferences that it's doing something that's, that's very useful and very powerful. On to slide 16. Um, so let me give you my definition of ontology. It's a, uh, the common definition is that it's a conceptualization of a domain. I think that's much too weak a definition. I think we need to move to something that's a bit more specific, like the second definition. But ontology is really a set of definitions in a formal language for terms describing the world. If we don't have a formal language, we simply have a, a, a dictionary or a thesaurus, something that's made for human consumption. And in my mind, it's not fair to then call that an ontology. We might as well call it by what it's been called for the last several hundred years, uh, a dictionary or a thesaurus. To get to be an ontology, uh, as I see it, um, is, is, is the, the intended use in computer science, um, it has to be something in a formal language that a machine can process. Slide 17. Um, let me just briefly give comparison to other kinds of knowledge representations so that I can make a case for why Sumo, uh, the Sumo's use of first-order logic is a real advance and a real necessity in knowledge representation. So frames are very convenient things. Uh, we have uh, classes like person, so Adam is an instance of class person. There's some slots defined for the class person, such as height and occupation. Those slots have values when you're talking about a particular instance frame. And various frame languages have little annotations sometimes that you can put on slots, such as the cardinality of a slot, that I only have one height. Slide 18. However, there are significant problems with this kind of very simple representation. It's, uh, it's I believe, very problematic. Um, so one of the issues with frame representations, and this is also true with description logics and therefore with OWL uh, in its current and its older versions as well, uh, that representing things like binary relations uh, is problematic at, at the very best. Um, so a common thing that one might want to say is that uh, B is between A and C, for example. Um, if you only have binary relations, the only way to represent this is to decompose it into a series of binary relations rather than its original authored form. Uh, as, as shown here, you have to create an arbitrary betweenness, uh, between relation, and you have to create an arbitrary instance of a, a particular betweenness, uh, and then bring all these things into relation. And an additional problem is that if you actually want to then go back to the original authored form, you have to actually state that somehow that between one is referring to the first argument of the original relation. So you need yet another three uh, relations. So this gets very unwieldy very fast, and it's simply not suitable for uh, auth uh, purposes of authoring. Now, then you might say that uh, this sort of frame or description logic representation could be a good interchange or underlying uh, representation, but then you've just sort of pushed off the problem and said, well, actually, we do need another language for authoring that's more like what we'd get in, in a full first-order logic representation anyway. Um, negation is another serious issue. Um, uh, correct existential and universal quantification are other issues that I won't really have time to go into. Um, but these are, in my mind, crippling problems, and, and I'm afraid I have to take the role of being the one to say that the emperor has no new clothes and that despite all of the, of the uh, push that's going behind the current semantic web, 
although the concept of the semantic web is a, a web of semantic information is absolutely right, I think, and uh, an important advance, the current implementation of the technologies that are intended to fulfill that promise uh, actually fall far short in, in these ways as well as many others. Uh, and one of the justifications for putting up with these limitations is efficient computation. I believe that's actually a red herring, and I'll talk about that just now. Uh, slide 19. Um, in my mind, the implementation is very different than representation, and uh, we find this all the time in our own work. You know, one can create a very rich representation, and then if an application is such that there are serious performance limitations or, or restrictions that are required, you know, very fast processing, um, then one can compile out just a portion of the representation or do uh, little tricks to make things efficient. But the, the important thing is to actually capture the knowledge and not cripple oneself from the outset at uh, design time, at knowledge representation time. Uh, slide 20 is kind of a follow-up on this. So there's really a spectrum of ways in which one can use ontology, and none of these should, should force us to cripple our original knowledge representation. Um, we can use ontology as an information engineering tool at, at design time when, in fact, there are very few uh, performance constraints. Things can be done offline, batch process, and so forth. Um, the idea here is do things like uh, doing really hard, deep theorem proving to test the internal consistency of a standard. This is something that can be you know, run on a server in the background over days if necessary. It doesn't need to have high performance. What we need is full capturing of the knowledge and correctness of that knowledge. And that's what a truly rich representation language uh, will give you. Uh, that's what it will enable. Um, so this kind of notion of working at design time and being concerned about design time as well as runtime, I think, is, is, should just be obvious in computer science, but I'm afraid it's been given too little attention uh, in the ontology world. Um, in just the same respect, um, folks talk about the need for fast runtime processing. Well, we take Sumo all the time and just uh, compile out subsets that will say run uh, in prologue or just uh, run in a description logic kind of fashion and, and will function extremely fast. But again, all of the difficult work in capturing the original knowledge, making sure it's correct, making sure that it's faithful to the real world has been done so that we don't wind up with representations that are either incorrect or uh, make assumptions that are not uh, otherwise made explicit that are going to come back to catch us later. Um, and at really the, the peak of all this, and of course it also gives us the possibility of, with the same knowledge representation, doing really deep uh, logical processing for things like uh, decision support and automated reasoning uh, in a runtime fashion. Uh, slide 21. Uh, I want to just talk a, a little bit generally about upper ontology as being the attempt to capture uh, the most general and reusable terms and definitions. Um, it has an also an important function that it's very hard, if not impossible, for any one person or even group of people to think uh, of all of the ways in which to characterize some concept in the real world. And an upper ontology provides essentially a catalog of questions. Uh, it provides a, a tool that lets us be reminded or, or even told in the first place of all the considerations that we should care about when being concerned with defining a concept very precisely. 
Um, and it also provides for very large-scale reuse because it's a, a general hierarchy that allows us to put more specific things into relation. Uh, slide 22, uh, I believe that this is becoming less prominent, but at least used to be the case a few years ago that there was a lot of criticism of even the notion of coming up with an upper ontology. Um, people would say that it was just somehow impossible, um, but yet very little proof of that was, was ever offered and ever could be offered, I believe. Uh, and really, I think this is a maybe a reasonable supposition, a reasonable hypothesis, but it breaks down when one actually looks at how SUMO in particular has been used in so many different uh, domains, cultures, uh, by people speaking different languages and so forth. So I believe most, a lot of the concerns about the, the uh, ability of, of any group to create an upper ontology uh, breaks down into questions and misunderstandings about uh, these sort of three distinctions that I have on this slide 22. Um, there's ontology, our set of, of formal definitions, and then there's language, how we present that ontology to either a particular group or a particular group of, of, of language speakers in, the different, in different countries. Um, we can, and, and do in SUMO, have the same language-independent formal definitions in logic and have different presentations, different term names, different uh, natural language paraphrases in different target languages. So we have very active users uh, in Taiwan and China, for example, and they're working directly with uh, Chinese character term names. Uh, they don't have to read the English at all. So there's really no problem with having a language-independent ontology that has presentations for uh, different language speakers. And the same also is true for different communities for whom uh, different particular term names may be more comfortable or congenial. Uh, lastly, there's a difference between ontology, I believe, and knowledge, although this is somewhat more, more uh, arguable. Um, we could certainly imagine two groups uh, where, say, one group believes in mythical unicorns and the other doesn't, uh, yet they still have an identical definition for what it means to be a unicorn, that it's you know, a, a horse genus and it has one horn and so forth, and simply all they differ on is whether they exist or not. They have different knowledge, but they have the same definitions. Slide 23. All right, so let me move now, hopefully more rapidly, uh, into SUMO itself and how it's uh, been advanced most recently. So SUMO now uh, is, as it was before, um, some thousand terms, uh, arbitrary, arbitrarily capped at about a thousand terms, 4,000 axioms, 750 rules. We originally mapped it by hand to WordNet 1.6, and uh, probably most of you are familiar with WordNet, but uh, if not, it's a free product developed by Princeton University over the past decade or two, and it has some 100,000 English word senses. And now WordNet is just one of many different language WordNets. There's some hundred in the global WordNet organization, all of which are related to each other in varying degrees and varying degrees of maturity. Um, so it's really a multilingual lexicon now, not just an English lexicon. Uh, as I mentioned, it's now in version 3, and we've tried to keep Sumo consistent with these, uh, the evolution in WordNet versions over time. Uh, as Jim Schoening mentioned in his introduction, Sumo was begun in 2000 uh, under his direction. 
um, as a U.S. government small business grant at the previous company I worked for, and Jim had the foresight to encourage us strongly to release it publicly, make it open source, and submit it to uh, consideration as, as a standard. Uh, although the standards process was ultimately uh, unsuccessful and is now somewhat moribund, um, the discipline of getting Sumo out to the public early and often uh, had a big positive impact because it gave us a lot of feedback and it also gave us a certain degree of publicity. Uh, and it forced me to learn how to answer some of the abstract criticisms uh, for why Sumo was, was or uh, wasn't you know, a good idea and learn how to prove and communicate effectively uh, all of the, the strengths and possibilities inherent uh, in this developing model. Uh, slide 24. Uh, some other characteristics of Sumo. It's not. De it's formally defined, so it's not dependent upon any particular implementation. Uh, in fact, several people uh, have independently developed their own uh, browsers or reasoners uh, that work on Sumo. But we do provide a, a fully functional package called Sigma that's available on SourceForge for free um, that allows you to do uh, development of ontologies based on Sumo and uh, do powerful inference. And uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, my first slide, there are lots of users of Sumo right now. Uh, slide 25, I often get asked, why is Sumo correct? What have you done to validate it? And we've done four things. Uh, the mapping to WordNet has been a tremendous uh, positive thing in terms of that it provides a check on the completeness and coverage of Sumo. You know, when we started the, the WordNet mapping effort, we mapped just to Sumo itself, just the upper level of a 1,000 terms. Now we've done a fairly good job, I think, of making sure that most of the domain ontology terms are actually linked into WordNet. So it's a much richer and more specific mapping. And if you, uh, if you search for, you know, Gambia or, or something, you'll actually get um, a link to the formal Sumo term for Gambia and its attributes as an African country. Uh, whereas before you would just get a mapping to the generic Sumo upper level term of nation. Uh, I've mentioned a bit about peer review since we've given away Sumo for free. Um, we've done some formal validation with theorem provers and uh, actually made some recent advances there that I'll talk about in just a moment um, and done lots of domain ontologies. Uh, slide 26, uh, I think I've covered. Uh, WordNet was really a, an inspiration to Sumo uh, in terms of the business process of doing open academic research. Uh, WordNet's really a standard, and uh, we aspire to have the same degree of influence and coverage in the community of Sumo. Uh, slide 27, uh, what does it mean specifically, this uh, WordNet Sumo mapping? Well, it means that for the WordNet lexical database that is fundamentally based around synonymous words, like this synset uh, plant flora or plant life, uh, that we've given provided a link to the formal sumo term plant and well what this gives us is that not only now do we have a an informal dictionary definition a living organism lacking the power of locomotion which is what is given in wordnet but we also have links now to all of the formal logical sumo axioms including the one shown here which is not terribly exciting just saying that uh, if something's part of a plant um, then it's uh, made out of a, a plant substance um, 
not terribly exciting, but if you collect enough of those uh, logical statements, then the computer starts to have some of the same information that a human being would. And even though it's common sense and obvious to us as humans, if we don't go through this laborious process of stating all this information, then the machine is going to be lacking some of the knowledge that we have as humans. So that's why this is a, a big job, but also an essential job. Slide 28, um, just an overview of how the mappings work. And now, nouns are incre incredibly rich. They can map to just about anything. Uh, verbs probably are the most restricted. They usually uh, map to uh, subtypes of the sumo class of process, um, although there's a whole class of things called stative verbs that actually don't, uh, don't refer to uh, processes in the world or events, but rather states, and they have a whole different set of mappings. Adjectives and adverbs are a little bit disappointing. They're not simply as, as formally rich. It's very difficult to come up with a formal, isolated uh, definition of what beauty means, for example. Um, so that's why those are, are more, more problematic. Tw slide 29, I mentioned a little bit about links to other languages. Here's just a list of, of some of those languages. Um, this has given us some confidence that there's no deep cultural or linguistic bias uh, in Sumo, as I mentioned, since it can be used by Chinese speakers in uh, China, um, as well as Indians uh, speaking uh, Hindi in, in Bombay, uh, as well as in the U.S. Um, if, if, that, if there were some deep cultural bias, uh, I think we would have heard about it by now or seen examples of, of what these difficulties might be. Slide 30, um, Sumo is a modular ontology with 11 modules in the following dependency structure. Slide 31, um, here's just a, a listing of some of the domain ontologies that uh, extend a, a mid-level ontology, which in turn extends Sumo. Um, these statistics are a little bit old, but give you some idea of the uh, size of Sumo itself. Uh, a lot of the ontologies, admittedly, are military. Uh, you know, a lot of the domain ontologies are, are military in orientation because that's where a lot of our customer base has been. That is slowly changing as we now do more and more commercial work. Slide 32. Um, common issue that I get asked about is, well, sumo terms are very general. Are they actually useful? We did a formal study a while back um, actually using Psych before Sumo was even uh, created that I think proved pretty conclusively in a large test that uh, upper-level terms were useful in practical work. And, and it really shouldn't, uh, in retrospect, have been surprising. I mean, it's hard to talk about uh, uh, things in the real world without needing the uh, a facility for expressing something like that one event occurs before another or that a particular individual was the agent, the motive force, the driving force behind a particular event or process. These are upper-level terms, and they're all absolutely practically useful. Um, so I'll move very quickly through just a description of the upper levels of SUMO, and here I'll just talk about the taxonomy, uh, the, the sort of the backbone of SUMO, but uh, please keep in mind that for each of these terms, there's a wealth of formal rules and definitions uh, that clearly and precisely define the meaning of these terms as opposed to just having their position in the hierarchy as one would in a semi-formal taxonomy, for example. So SUMO is rooted with a term called entity that breaks down into uh, physical things and abstract things. Physical things are those which have a position in space and time. There's some fun boundary cases to talk about there, um, but uh, I think we've heard them all at this point, and uh, uh, this particular structure seems to work pretty well. 
Um, physical things are then decomposed into objects and processes, so uh, objects like a chair or a table and a process like the process of my giving this talk. Um, objects have some structure too. Um, they break down into substances like water where you can have uh, subdivide a quantity of water and you still have now two quantities of water or corpuscular objects like a table where you cut it in half and you no longer have, you don't have two tables, you have uh, some hunks of wood or metal. We're on slide 34 now. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, so we're actually up to uh, 36 now, processes. Um, so processes, uh, there's a very extensive hierarchy of processes, even in just SUMO itself, just the upper level, there's about 175. Um, we believe it's, it was one of the important early advances in SUMO that a uh, similarly uh, detailed and large ontology of processes was not previously available. And this has been expanded very greatly now with the mid-level ontology and the domain ontologies. And on this slide, I've just shown uh, the first two levels below the type of process and highlighted in white uh, some at the third level that are particularly useful, such as transportation and so social interaction that are very rich in terms of their further decomposition and definition. Uh, slide 37, uh, there's a whole set of abstract things like, you know, the number two doesn't have a position in space and time. It's an abstract, timeless thing. Uh, slide 38. There's a very rich set of case roles, uh, largely inspired by Davidsonian semantics, for those of you that may be familiar with Davidson's uh, seminal work and paper that appeared, I believe, in the early 70s. Um, so uh, here's a little better example on slide 39, breaking down, for example, this uh, sentence, Brutus stabbed Caesar with a knife on Tuesday, that's taken from uh, Terence Parsons' uh, excellent books on, on, on this subject. Um, and it shows that we reify an event by stabbing um, and then have a constellation of participants or case roles that stand in relation to this event, such as that uh, Caesar was the patient or the object of the stabbing and the instrument was a knife and so forth. Slide 40 shows the expression of this uh, in sumo terms, in the Suo-Kif language using sumo terms like stabbing, knife, Tuesday, etc very powerful kind of representation, virtually ubiquitous now in knowledge representation. Slide 41, um, SUMO has a whole set of attributes and roles. Uh, very important thing, very common mistake that I believe a lot of people make uh, in ontology when they have more restricted languages. They wind up uh, creating things like the, the, the class of all blue cars. Uh, although from a logical standpoint, that's not incorrect necessarily. From a practical knowledge representation standpoint, it's really problematic because then you have things that actually ch can change their class membership over time even though you still want them to have, retain their identity. So if I paint my car, it's still the same car, but an attribute has changed, its color. Um, and so it's, I think, very problematic to represent you know, the class of all blue cars. 42, um, just to emphasize the fact that SUMO is richly axiomatized with rules. It contains things like like the following rules that state precisely that uh, a driving event necessarily involves a vehicle. Um, so it's not just English definitions for humans to read, but logical definitions that are suitable for automated inference, automated theorem proving. 
So slide 43. So now we're on to, uh, and, and forgive the long introduction, stuff that is uh, recent and new in Sumo. So we've just uh, embarked, uh, we're a few months into a one-year project um, working with a company that does financial transaction systems for royalty payments uh, for some very large customers, including Fortune 500 customers. Um, and our job is to re-engineer their ontology management business process, uh, re-engineer their tools based on our open source tool set, and re-engineer their very extensive ontology based on Sumo. Slide 44. Uh, and I guess I should also mention, uh, I'm, I'm speaking about this in general terms because it is fairly early in the project. We've, we've just finished writing uh, a detailed paper on the work um, that will be published in the next few months, and so we do hope to be able to give everybody some more detail soon. Uh, so slide 44, this commercial application, um, involves this company's very extensive current ontology. It was really surprising how much they had done, how much work they had done, how much effort they had gone to in creating uh, an informal ontology that was very rich and, and surprisingly sophisticated in the thought process behind it, but expressed using extraordinarily uh, low-tech tools, uh, in their case, uh, primarily Excel spreadsheets. Um, an important feature of their development process has been that they have local term names and local definitions that are specific for every customer. So they essentially deliver a lot of the same core ontology content to each of their customers, but they give them all names and definitions that are the ones that are the most congenial for their particular end users. Uh, this winds up being very powerful because the customers have something that's different and it's really tailored to their local vocabulary and business process, even though it also maximizes uh, reuse uh, of this company's core ontology. Um, they also have a management system that allows them to do exports of XML and RDF from their uh, table-based structure. Um, and they also have to deal with some very large databases. One of their clients has a, a database of uh, royalty information that's uh, nearly three gigabytes. Um, another feature is that uh, their performance requirements, uh, at least for a lot of the ontology work, uh, is stuff that can be sort of batch processed and done overnight because the actual implementation is going to be just relational databases and XML messages. And so the updates to the database that happen to have to happen throughout a business day need to be very fast, but the checking for consistency and conversion in uh, structure from formal ontology language, or even in their case originally informal ontology language, to databases and XML uh, is a batch process that can be done uh, kind of offline. Uh, slide 45. So the, the goals and the reason why they brought us in uh, was that they realized that their process was, was really starting to become unwieldy. It's, uh, it's amazing they were able to go uh, as long as they were with, with such a sort of low-tech tool support. So they realized they need to add formality to their existing model um, because with all these different spreadsheets, they were having some trouble keeping them in sync. Uh, they had no way to do automated consistency checks. They were doing everything through, uh, well, not everything, but most things through visual inspection of very uh, ingeniously designed uh, layouts and formats and a certain amount of duplication. Um, they also wanted to be able to push out an ontology editor to their clients. I mean, they fundamentally don't see their business as being uh, one in which they have endless maintenance contracts 
with all customers. They want, uh, they want, and their customers want to be given uh, an installation, to be given a working system, and then be able to have control over their own destiny. Um, and so what they needed was a user-friendly ontology editor that could maintain all of the power and formality that uh, is promised by Sigma and Sumo, but also make at least a portion of that power uh, available to customers uh, to change by themselves and not have to come back to, to the consultancy. Um, they wanted to be able to create a broader set of definitions, both to enable better database integration at the client site with other needs they may have, uh, as well as enable their own expansion into new markets beyond uh, just the, the royalty payment world. Um, they saw an advantage in the fact that all the Sumo and Sigma work is open source, uh, and so anything that, for example, the U.S. government pays me to do uh, in terms of improving inference or any other thing uh, is immediately available to them as well, and that would not have been the case uh, had they done everything in-house or worked with a, a purely proprietary solution. Um, and for Articulate Software, this is a uh, tremendous opportunity that not only do we get paid to add some more functionality that's in turn available to our other customers, uh, but we also have a real chance to do a long-term, uh, fully deployed uh, exercise uh, in applying Sumo and Sigma to solving a significant real-world business problem. Slide 46. So our initial tasks um, are to implement some user interface improvements to Sigma, um, add a, a tree-based editor and a frame-style browser to help enable this uh, end-user maintenance of the ontology. Uh, Sigma has admittedly been very much uh, uh, an engineer-focused tool. It's very powerful, um, but it can be somewhat difficult for the layperson to learn, and also includes a lot of detail that uh, every layperson may not simply not need and may just be in this distraction. So by, by providing these restricted views, we hope to uh, expand our, our customer base. Um, we also now have a prototype XML and SQL ontology export so that we can automatically and quickly generate uh, relational databases and XML messaging from uh, the content of a knowledge base. Now, there is a, an interesting wrinkle here that because XML, for example, is so flexible, one could imagine a near infinite number of different uh, structures that one could produce in XML from exactly the same formal ontology content. There are really a lot of very open choices. So what we've done for this particular customer is to provide them with some meta predicates that allow them to have control over the structure that's generated, as well as uh, allowing the option of make, having Sigma make what decisions it thinks are, are reasonable to produce uh, an XML structure completely automatically. So, for example, you know, which tags are subordinate to which other tags. Um, and then a final uh, listing here of, of what one of our initial tasks is, is to start merging the existing ontology with Sumo. They have a very large ontology, and uh, from our first inspection, from doing kind of a pilot study of just a couple weeks' duration, uh, we were able to go do good mappings between their top-level structures and relations and what's already in Sumo, and now we need to get down to the nitty-gritty of expanding to all the rest of the terms uh, and uh, really creating these full formal definitions. Uh, it'll also be the case that 
because Sumo is general and we have uh, sort of point coverage of some different domains, we don't really have all of the coverage uh, that they need. And so there'll be a lot of new formal content that will be added to Sumo uh, itself. And uh, fortunately, they've agreed in the value of making all that open source. So uh, you all, if you're interested in that content, will have access to it uh, as it's produced. Uh, slide 47. So I mentioned this just briefly earlier. This was a little kind of side project that I did. I had a uh, colleague just mentioned that, that uh, this DBpedia effort uh, existed and, well, why couldn't some of this be imported into Sumo? And so nights and weekends I spent a few days um, trying to import one portion of their content. So they have a big database extracted from Wikipedia and one of those databases is a database of information about famous and not-so-famous people, um, such as their birth date and where they were born, their names, and so forth. Um, the people content of DBpedia actually uses the friend-of-a-friend uh, ontology, which has been touted a lot in the semantic web world. Uh, I, you know, I was actually surprised when I looked at it how lightweight and redundant and even inconsistent and certainly very ad hoc it was. It's really just a, a grab bag of a lot of different relations that even in the current stand and yet how this is different from the relation given two lines above or this hasn't really been defined carefully but it's in here anyway um, and that's I think very typical of of these things that I would uh, say more more correctly would be termed a, a sort of folksonomy um, than any kind of a real ontology even though it happens to be uh, stated in OWL in, in this particular case. So uh, fortunately uh, only a tiny portion of the friend of a friend uh, uh, folksonomy, if you will, was actually used in this people content. So it was very easy to take these uh, seven relations that were used and map them to Sumo and create uh, a new version uh, that was stated in KIF and consistent with Sumo. And uh, I've given the references of where we've published that online. It's, it's a lot of content, 16 megabytes. Um, but that's just one portion of DBpedia. Now, I've just uh, heard, I think you know, yesterday, I got a message that they've linked DBpedia to WordNet. And because Sumo is completely linked to WordNet, that at least opens up the possibility that we should be able to do um, a mapping and a re-expression of all the DBpedia content uh, in Sumo thanks to those links. Uh, I think that's very exciting because there's, there's a heck of a lot of data in Wikipedia, and it would be nice to have that all be available for formal inference and not just for human reading and inspection. Slide 48, um, I mentioned a little bit before the work that we're doing with University of Miami. They've been running a theorem-proving competition uh, every year for quite some years now where they bring together uh, mostly academics that have developed uh, automated reasoning systems, and they throw a bunch of test problems at them, and they total up uh, who gets the problems right and how fast they do them. Um, this this effort was actually the original inspiration for our inclusion of the Vampire Theorem Prover in Sigma. Uh, and we're still very pleased with Vampire. It still seems to be the best, but we thought it would be really nice to be able to open, the, open up the compatibility of Sigma and the use of uh, Sumo to a lot of other theorem provers, and they have some 40 different theorem provers. So we're interested on the possibility that there may well be different provers that have different performance on different classes of problems. It's, in fact, very likely to be the case. And so by having access to many more and possibly even by combining them or giving them all a, 
an opportunity to, to vote or uh, say, oh, I want to solve this problem in a, in a dynamic fashion, that we may well be able to get much better inference performance than we could with just one prover alone. Uh, we also have the possibility now that we can express SUMO in their format, their TPTP format, uh, that we can make problems that are of interest to us available to the rest of this theorem proving community in hopes that provers to perform much better on large problems in practical knowledge representation and reasoning. Uh, the current TPTP suite is, I would characterize it as heavily weighted to solving very, very hard problems uh, that have very, very small numbers of axioms. So a typical TPTP problem may have only six axioms, so proving some sort of difficult theorem on uh, mathematical group th theory, for example. Whereas a typical sumo problem may have, you know, 20,000 axioms, most of which are irrelevant, but uh, can't universally be declared irrelevant, irrespective of the particular query that may be asked. So it's a very different class of problems. So we've done this initial connection to the Theorem Prover Suite. Uh, if you actually download Sigma, you can uh, run queries on the University of Miami servers with any one of their 40 different provers. Uh, slide 49, and I believe this is my last slide. Um, so I also want to just mention this project, Controlled English to Logic Translation. It's very much a research, advanced research project, and it's been going on for quite a number of years uh, now. Um, and it's an effort to do full formal translation of English sentences into formal logic. Now, most work in linguistics uh, to date has been concerned with search and retrieval. So even work in question answering, for the most part, has had to do with uh, users uh, or automated test systems that uh, have uh, short English questions and a large corpus of articles or databases that may or may not be relevant to that question. And so the problem is, how do you match the question with the document that answers it? Uh, the better systems will not just return a whole document, as Google does, for example, um, but will try to pull back just the subset that answers the question. But it's still very problematic. It's still a very approximate way of answering things. It's uh, statistical. It's error-prone. It, it works well if you have a human in the loop to look at the answers, just in the same way that you as a, a user uh, trying out Google um, will look through this at least the first page of links, and hopefully your answer's in there somewhere once you uh, read through a couple of the, the documents that are returned. But it'd be so much better if instead of returning a document, the machine returned an answer. And so that's why we are going to this effort of trying to create a full logical expression so we can do logical inference on the query and return an answer, not a reference to a document. So because we have the links to all of WordNet, um, CALT has this extraordinarily large vocabulary, about 100,000 word census. Um, that puts it in a very different space than other earlier efforts to do this kind of thing, which have typically been uh, smaller academic efforts without uh, either a, a large vocabulary or a large ontology with which to express the results. CALT is completely domain independent. Um, because it uses WordNet and Sumo, which are domain independent. 
Um, and the development process or the strategy for doing this has been that we wanted to have completely unambiguous parses. So we started with and still have just a small subset of English. It's not unrestricted English. We can't just read an arbitrary newspaper. So what CELT is good for is where you have uh, a user asking question, a sort of dialogue system, where a user can be trained to enter sentences that are uh, not terribly complex grammatically uh, and that don't use the full set of linguistic features of English, such as metaphor and analogy, uh, are well beyond uh, the scope of what CELT can handle. But within that scope of what it can handle, it's very rich um, and can handle any sort of, uh, you know, common action sense, senses, uh, sentences, either in statement or query, and uh, we believe will ultimately be a, a very useful and powerful tool. Okay, so that's it for the slides. So I've tried to cover um, Sumo's background, why we've done what we've done more recently to be the tool with uh, and, and system and ontology with as much uh, user uh, uptake uh, as it has uh, very recently. It's really been quite exciting to see how many people are using Sumo. I get queries you know, every day from people in countries around the world about uh, how they can best use Sumo on particular projects or advise them how I can advise them in some way uh, in order to be successful using these products. So uh, I guess I'll open things up for questions. Thank you very much, uh, Adam. That was a very comprehensive description of Sumo as well as an update of uh, how Sumo has been doing lately. Uh, thank you. So uh, in the meantime, let's look at uh, who we have. We have a, a, a someone uh, trying to ask a question, uh, someone from the area code 908, uh, but be, before I call on that participant, uh, let's try also to encourage uh, those who have comments or questions to press a 1-1 one, one, uh, on the keypad now so that at least we know who's on queue uh, while we take up our uh, first uh, uh, person who has a question. So uh, I now see a couple more hands. Uh, all right, we will go through people one by one. But uh, person from the 908 area code, uh, please uh, uh, identify yourself and go ahead. Yes, this, is, this is Pat Cassidy. Can you hear me? Yes. Hi, Pat. Hello. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I had two questions, one specific, one general. And before that, I just want to say congratulations, Adam. Your, your system is seriously developing very well. Thank you. Um, first specific question. Uh, are there any published descriptions of the use of Sumo in database integration? Well, let's see. Um, I mean, broadly speaking, yes, many. Um, depending upon what you consider a database or not. Um, and I well, guess, uh, tables, you know, uh, tables are databases, but the, but the notion of, of using it specifically for the purpose of um, making certain that the, um, there is standardization uh, in, in, in the meanings of the uh, table columns and so on. Yeah, I mean, we, certainly that's, that's a large part of, of even 
you know, what we do on a day-to-day basis. Um, you know, I think you'll see a, a good example. I mean, the most recent and comprehensive example of that will be when um, we can go to publication with uh, the work in uh, royalty payments that I just spoke about. Um, I can't think offhand of what's already posted uh, on the Sumo publication site, but I'm, I'm sure there are quite a number that would fit your description. Well, the, the answer um, would try be, to come up with um, I mean, it would it would address this, this specific question. If, if a customer were to say, uh, uh, if you propose to use Sumo for database integration, can you appoint me to a description of a project in which that was already done? Right. This is, this is the answer, yeah. Uh, so you say, look, at, yeah, I, I didn't see any specifically. I, I haven't comprehensively scanned all of the publications. Okay, the second uh, question is, uh, can you guess at why? Uh, or if, do you think that Sumo is becoming more widely used than Psych? And if so, why? Well, so I really haven't tracked their actual user base. I mean, my impression of That's their user base has been that uh, you know they're they're good at getting people to use it on existing funded DoD projects, and they've had some interesting commercial pilots to talk about. But all of those commercial pilots kind of end, and then people don't use it anymore. Um, so my impression is that in terms of the longevity of use and the number of people that continue to use Sumo, that we're getting better penetration. But you know I haven't done any sort of formal study. I mean I think it would be logical that that would be the case just because we don't charge a fee, and they do. Well, uh, of course, the, the open site now is free. Uh, and, uh, right, but it's such a tiny portion of, of Psych, it's it's very different than Sumo. Right. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Pat. Uh, a person from area code 256, uh, you're next. Yeah, this is Andrew Potter. Um, can you hear me? Hear you. Go ahead. Yeah. I, I have a my question concerns kind of a comparison between the semantic web technologies and and the Sumo approach. One of the concerns that I have encountered in looking at Owl is this open world assumption. Uh, in which things are you know, either known or not known and the things you don't know about. Uh, they may be true for all your, you know. I'm wondering what the SUMO approach to, to that kind of boundary condition is. Well, certainly if you don't have uh knowledge that's certain, then the right thing to do is to create uh, sub-knowledge bases that are, you know, designated as as not being certain and do essentially local reasoning with local assumptions. Uh, That would be a common way to implement this. So you can still have the same sorts of definitions, but getting back to what I talked about between uh, ontology and knowledge, if you have different uh, worlds, if you will, or different people that have different assumptions, then certainly that should be separated out into different sub-knowledge bases that can be reasoned with independently, much in the same way that if you had two different human experts with different knowledge, you could ask them each the same question and have them each give a different answer. 
and they would be an analogous to having two sort of sub-knowledge bases of SUMO in which you ask a local query. Okay. I, I think what I was attempting to get at has, has, has less to do with the ontology itself, perhaps, than with the reasoning process that you apply to it. Um, uh, for example, in Prolog, if you uh, if you enter in a query and it, it cannot uh, prove it, then it simply answers no, which can mean either no or I don't know. Uh, whereas in the open world assumption, it's it's backwards from that, um, and that is it is yes or for all I know yes. Right, and you have that flexibility in, with Sigma to either ask. Um, just yes or no, and ask yes, no, or unknown. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, I'd like I'd like to look more into that and maybe get into the details if I could. Sure. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, next up is uh, a participant from the area code seven o five. Hello, Adam. This is Cameron Ross from Symbioticware. Hi. How are you? Good. Uh, a quick question about licensing. Uh, you mentioned the general philosophy of open source with Sumo, and I, I commend that path um, from a strategic perspective. Uh, the question I have relates to the type of licensing and perhaps food for thought for the Ontolog community going forward. Um, I noticed that uh, the Sumo is, is essentially looks like sort of a public domain licensing model. Uh, whereas the mid-level ontology on, hosted on the Sumo site is licensed under the GPL. Right. Uh, my, my question is, if I develop an ontology which refers to terminologies, concepts, what have you, in the, in the Milo database, does that become a derivative work, meaning that I, too, have to license my or distribute my ontology under the GPL? Yeah, so there's certainly a, a complex legal issue there. My understanding and the understanding I have from uh, a, a lawyer who I consider an expert in this regard and has, you know, had legal discussions with Stallman himself uh, is that ontologies are data. And as such, one can freely reference the terms in a GPL ontology and not have your referencing content also be subject to GPL. Okay. much in the same way that in the free documentation license, uh, GNU free documentation license, you can certainly cite or excerpt. Um, it's, it's very different than having a derivative work. Okay, so it's not a derivative work. So I guess that would be the recommended license to distribute open source ontologies then? Your recommended licensing? Uh, I guess, you know, in retrospect, so, so I originally developed uh, Milo and the other domain ontologies at my former company. And so I don't have the legal flexibility now to change that license. I'm, I'm stuck with it, and the community is stuck with it. I don't believe there's an actual problem, but I believe there could be a perception problem. There's often a perception problem, even just in the fact that you're, you're asking this question. You're aware that there may be an issue here. Um, and so in retrospect, I would probably recommend something like the GNU free documentation license, which is really more appropriate for a product like an ontology. Okay, perfect. That answers my question. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. Thank you, Cameron. Uh, 
Next up is our participant from 301, and we have a couple of those. Actually, I, I believe this must be Fabian. Fabian Neuhaus? Yeah. Um, I have two questions. Uh, one is I'm interested in your translation from English to, to logic project. And as you're probably aware of, um, this is something which linguists have done for a while now. And uh, especially, um, I mean, Montague comes into mind who, who wrote uh, English as a formal language. And if I understand them correctly, the consensus is that you can do it with uh, large fragments of language and languages, and but you need a much more expressive logic than first oral logic. Uh, you need a you know, multimodal uh, type theory. That's at least what Montague was using. So, um, how does it work? What is your experience uh, with translating it to first order? Well, I guess I would say you know it depends on what fragment of English you cover, of course. Um, so, if you don't care, if you don't handle modals, then you don't have to worry about modal logic, for example. Um, so, Sumo. Uh, um, and Suo Kif does allow you to express beyond first-order logic, and, and sort of I, I, I'm afraid I, I get myself into trouble by just saying that Sumo is in first-order logic. It actually uses some facilities that are beyond that, and then in uh, Sigma we do some tricks to do what are essentially first-order, uh, restricted first-order interpretations of things, which in their limit are uh, have the true semantics of being beyond first-order. Um, well, I, I'm talking about simple things like adjectives. So uh, okay. if you say uh, black car, that, that's just the, um, the overlap between the set of black things and the uh, set of cars. You can, but if you have fake diamond, then uh, fake, you know, a fake diamond is not a diamond. So you you would treat the would have to treat the adjective fake very differently from black. That's a very simple example where you don't. Yeah, yeah but neither of those are are, are beyond first order. Oh well, okay. I would, I would just be interested in seeing the solution for that because I I know how they treat it with Montague semantics, but not I don't see it. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, I'd be happy to to share the code with you, and uh, you know, I'd also recommend we've got a couple of papers on Kelt that are on my my website that's uh, I think linked from the conference call page. Another link, uh, question I had uh, was, um, uh, since you tap into the public, uh, publicly available things like Wikipedia, how do you ensure quality? Um, because that, that's always a problem if you generate content from these sources. Yeah, so uh, what, what we do is, uh, I, I guess you'd say, uh, a kind of caveat emptor thing with good labeling. Um, I'm, I'm certainly aware that you know Wikipedia may have errors, and as a result, DBpedia may have errors, and as a result, our uh, Sumo-based translation of the people stuff may have errors. And that's something that you, as a client user of that content, will will certainly need to you know pay attention to uh, the, the the comments in in the header for that file that you know says it was automatically generated. Okay, thank you. Okay. Any other questions? I, oh, I'm sorry. I was. <laughs> I, we don't have other people lined up.
now. Uh, it's Peter Yim here. I actually have a, a couple of questions for Adam. And since uh, Ontolog is a concern itself with helping move uh, ontology into the mainstream application like yourself, uh, but also uh, one of the thrust is through standardization. So I, my couple of questions are related to standards. Uh, I heard you talk about, let's say, uh, exports or, or presentations in uh, XML and uh, SQL and RDF. Uh, what about maybe OWL? Well, um, yeah, so I've, I've had an, uh, an ambiguous relationship with OWL, I guess I would say. <laughs> um, OWL has lots of users, and so that means it's a good delivery vehicle for the content that's in Sumo because more people that are already using OWL may then be more likely to also use Sumo. Uh, on the other hand, for the issues that I mentioned, OWL is really a pretty forgive me, a bad language uh, for knowledge representation. And any translation of Sumo into OWL is going to lose about 90% of the formal content in Sumo. You're going to lose all the rules. You're going to lose all the axioms uh, that involve uh, relations that are beyond binary. And that's a big chunk of Sumo. And unfortunately, I've also gotten into problems where with the OWL translation of Sumo, which does exist and is posted on ontologyportal.org, uh, I remember having a, a, unfortunately, rather contentious conversation with an individual that assumed that's all there was and was complaining that uh, Sumo was lacking all sorts of, of obvious obvious things. And it took, us, took me a while to figure out that he, all of these complaints were due to the fact that uh, he did that, uh, that uh, the translation into OWL was a lossy one. He didn't bother to look at the original. So uh, I, I have this ambiguous relationship because I want people to use Sumo, but by translating into OWL, I actually occasionally get myself into trouble. Okay, so but, but will there be continued effort in, in, in that direction, I mean, given the fact that uh, it, it's gaining popularity as we speak? Yeah, uh, well, it, it really depends on what my customers want, I guess. And uh, if more people agitate for OWL translation, I'll certainly try to help beef up that translator. There is an OWL translator in Sigma that you can use today, um, but it doesn't generate 100% correct OWL. Okay, that, that's a good answer. Uh, yeah. I guess it will have to be market-driven. So yeah. going in the other direction, uh, uh, staying in first-order logic. So common logic is becoming an ISO standard. So any uh, initiative in sort of getting Sewell KIF to uh, common logic, com compliance, compatibility, whatever you call it? Well, my belief is, is that Sewell KIF right now is already common logic compliant. And I had uh, discussions, I think it was probably two years ago now, with Chris Menzel, uh, to that effect, that we determined there was there was nothing that wasn't comp uh, directly compatible. Um, so the surface syntax is slightly different, but common logic allows for different presentation formats without making a judgment uh, as to compatibility. So I'd say you know we already are compatible. There's there's no issue. If 
if one wanted us to be compatible with one of the surface representations, surface syntax representations, as opposed to the abstract syntax of common logic, there would be at least a little bit of effort uh, in uh, changing some of the, the logical operator names to conform to one of those standard presentations. Right. I mean, that, that, that's essentially my question. Any, any effort or foreseeable effort in sort of making that translation uh, available, or that translator available? Yeah, it's not something I have plans to spend time on, but if somebody wanted to do that, I'd be glad to advise, and it wouldn't be very difficult. I, I think that would be wonderful. Yeah. Uh, let's go around and, and ask if there are further questions from the, uh, the participants. Oh, I, I, yes, we do have one. Uh, someone from the 908 area code again. Is that Pat again? Uh, Pat, uh, if you do a star three. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, can you hear me? Yes. Go ahead. Uh, yes. Uh, Adam, I, I, I don't recall seeing the distinction made previously between rules and axioms. Could you ex uh, explain um, what that distinction is to us? Oh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really define those, and I've probably been a little bit loose with my terminology. Um, rules just being things that are logical implications or uh, disjunctions are logically equivalent uh, to that. Uh, so from a layman's standpoint, if something, then something else um, is uh, a ubiquitous form in sumo and is an essential part of the definitions for most terms. Axioms is just a more, broader, a more broad reference to any sort of logical statement. Right. So axioms so in includes rules. Subclass statements. Right, okay, yeah. thank you. Uh, any other questions? Uh, last round, uh, do a, a press of 1-1 one, one if you have a question uh, for Adam or if you have a comment uh, on this presentation on, on the subject of Sumo. Uh, this is your last chance. Oh, Peter, if I may, uh, just one yeah. other thing I didn't announce that um, soon uh, I should be have publication of a book on Sumo. Um, which was an attempt to kind of collect all of these various explanations that I've done, include some examples and, and a lot more detail. So I encourage people, if anyone's interested in at some point obtaining a book on Sumo, uh, send me some email so I can put you on a mailing list. Fantastic. Uh, maybe when, when, when that, uh, you, you have a, a web link to it, uh, kindly add that to, to this session page. Uh, we have a, a space for additional resources, and, and I guess uh, that would help people get to it. Yeah, that sounds great. Fantastic. Uh, a question from the person from area code 705. Uh, yes, Peter, this is Cameron Ross from Symbotiqware. I just wanted to mention that uh, our group is interested in both uh, Sumo and um, Common Logic and would be interested in somehow contributing to that effort. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. I mean, I'd say if, if you made a uh, a component uh, in Sigma that would allow us to do sort of a save as one of the common logic surface syntaxes, that would be a really valuable addition and wouldn't be very hard to do. So I'd be happy to correspond about, you know, pointing you to the right Java classes and so forth to get started on that. I mean, it may be that somebody who's a real, really savvy in common logic could do that in a week or so. Okay, that'd be, that'd be good to uh, look at further then. Thanks. And something like this would just be a great community project 
that maybe you and Adam could champion and, and get the other community members involved. Pat again, Pat Cassidy. Uh, Adam, I, I've seen re- references to uh, an article um, on Sumo and WordNet in, in the collection of articles on uh, lexicons and, and uh, ontologies, uh, which was due for publication this year. Do you have any information on when it will, in fact, be published by Cambridge? Uh, they they pushed back the publication date, unfortunately. I mean, we we turned in our paper on time, but I guess some other people didn't, so it got pushed back another three months. So um, I'm sorry, I don't know actually when it will be published. Uh, it's been kind of an interesting thing now that I'm, I'm doing more publishing book chapters. Uh, it's been a, uh, an interesting realization of how darned long it takes to go from paper writing to actual appearance in print. It's much very different. Than, right. uh, than journals and uh, you know that which in turn is very different than uh, conference proceedings. So sorry, I don't have a date. Okay, for you. but 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 it is still in process, though. Oh yes. Okay, I'll just keep looking for it. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that pretty much wraps it up. And let me thank Adam for sharing his insights with us, and uh, thank everyone for the participation today. Again, uh, it, this is. September 6th, year 2007, uh, Ontolog Forum with invited speaker Mr. Adam Pease, uh, CEO of Articulate Software, uh, presenting his talk on the suggested upper merged ontology at age 7, progress and promises. Thanks, Adam, and thank you, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.